Great to see you. It's good to be with you. Need a little positive reinforcement there. Great to see you. I want you to grab a Bible and uh, turn to Acts chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. If you are a guest or maybe been away on vacation or something, we're continuing on through Acts chapter 5. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's a copy of God's Word in the seat pocket in front of you. You take that. If you need, the, uh, need a copy of God's Word, that's our gift to you. So you feel free to take that with you. But to Acts chapter 5, we're going to be around verse 17 in just a few minutes, so you can find your place there. Uh, let me take a couple minutes and set up what we're going to be looking at this morning and how it's going to apply to our lives. I want to, I want to start this way, though. It's, it's summertime. We all rejoice in that. Uh, school's out, and all the kids say amen. Uh, it's getting warm outside. There's, there's a lot of good stuff going on. and Summertime, for the Lauren family at least, can mean only one thing, it means the Redneck Riviera, right? If you don't know what the Redneck Riviera is, that's Myrtle Beach. That's where we always go as a family. We just got back from there with our family and a few friends and just happened to be there this year during Biker Week, so it was added intensity. You didn't know my wife rode a Harley Davidson, did you? Well, you should see her on the strip anyway. So Redneck Riviera, but we were there and so thankful to be there. And again, I just want to say to you as a church, thanks for giving us the opportunity to be away. And publicly want to say thank you. I'm so honored to be part of a teaching team here, a team of pastors, elders, that no matter who stands and teaches God's Word, you know you're going to be challenged. And the Word is going to be faithfully taught. And I'm honored to be a part of a church like that. Uh, and glad to be back with you this morning. And we're going to, again, kind of look through Acts chapter 5. But I want to set up Acts chapter 5 this way. Uh, being away, uh, being there at the beach gives me some time personally just to pause and pull back and reflect a little bit as one of your pastors and one of your elders. It's always good to look back and as I had some time to look back over this past semester and this past spring and really take inventory a little bit of what God is doing in the life of our church and was just so grateful and I paused and thought about some of the things, and as I was away and thought about our church, you got to know I think about faces, and I think about names, and I think about some of you, and I think about life change that we've seen God bring about in many of your lives over the past few months. Uh, we've seen marriages, and I, and I can even think right now, marriages that have literally been reconciled and put back together in just the past few months and we rejoice in that we've seen lives radically changed I don't know if you were here just a few weeks ago but I couldn't stop thinking about a guy named Daniel who was baptized here just a few weeks ago and as he stood in the baptistry and gave testimony of Jesus saving him he just wept and cried and couldn't stop being overwhelmed with the greatness of God we're seeing that over and over people's lives being changed so grateful for that. I thought about how grateful we are to be served by a group of elders. I happen to be a part of that group, but you, you have a healthy group of leaders that are serving as your elders and pastors. I, I wish you could just sit in on one of our elders' meetings. They last a long, long time, but they're great meetings. Just to hear the heart of your elders as they pray for you and the passion they have for you and this church and wanting to see us grow and thrive and flourish. And I'm honored to serve as one of those elders. Got a team of deacons here that we're growing and we're multiplying that group. But you've got a, you've got a group of deacons in this church that want to serve you and make sure you're cared for and loved and that this body is healthy. 
So many things to be grateful for. I was thinking about our global impact. Even as we're gathered here this morning, you realize we've got people from our church literally all over the world. Indonesia and Nicaragua and people are, are leaving for Nigeria this week. And here we are in East Tennessee, a little church like this, and we get to have a global impact. What a gift and a privilege that is. Honored just a few months ago to be able to pay the last debt payment. And as a church say, we're debt free to God's glory. And what a gift that is from God. So it's very good for me personally. I'm just kind of sharing to be able to get away and say, Lord, thank you. I love being a part of this church. But then kind of like a parent, maybe you can relate to this. Maybe like a coach or maybe like a boss or a leader in any capacity. If you're in any leadership capacity, you're always wanting more for yourself and the people that you're leading. So for me, on top of kind of thinking, Lord, thank you for all you're doing, I had to kind of flip that a little bit and say, okay, God, what, what are those areas as a church that we've got to continue to grow? And as I'm studying through Acts chapter 5, and I'm reading through this passage that we're going to look at this morning, you got to know, in Acts chapter 5, the church is growing. The church is just flourishing. and It's in the midst of opposition. Anthony read that verse earlier. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. Jesus is building his church. Thank, thank goodness for that. And the gates of hell can't prevail against it. In other words, there is an enemy coming after God and his people and his church. You know that. We see that in Acts chapter 5. Opposition is coming, but the church is thriving. And what you see in Acts chapter 5, for me personally, are some areas that I have to say, God, help us as a people grow in some of these areas that we're going to see in this chapter. Help us grow, Lord, in a hunger and a pursuit for Christ's likeness. Are you personally satisfied in your own pursuit of holiness and your pursuit of Christ's likeness? Lord, help us grow in our devotion to one another as the people of God. And I'll just say this, a high view of God's church and what a privilege it is to be a part of God's church. Are we growing in our culture here of evangelism that we we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard like we got from the book of acts that wherever we go man we can't stop talking about jesus christ and i'm going to tell you acts chapter 5 challenges me personally in this way and here's how i want to frame it for you this morning what happens in your life and my life as followers of christ when following Jesus costs you something. What happens in your journey with Jesus and this pursuit we have as the people of God when we realize that following Jesus might demand something of us? And we, we see that from the early church here in Acts chapter 5. And for us, it's a real good challenge. It's, it's, it's an incredible challenge for us this morning to say, Lord, when I read some of these things in Acts chapter 5, and I hope you've been reading through it on your own, you come to some of these things in Acts chapter 5 and you say, wait a minute, I'm not that. <laughs> I want that to be true of me. I want that to be true of our church. I want to have that, but that's not where I am. So we see the church thriving and flourishing and we see some real challenges for us 
as a church that we want to continue to grow in Christ's likeness in our pursuit of Jesus this morning. So look with me, Acts chapter 5, kind of all that introduction. We're going to walk through a few verses this morning. I'm going to start in verse 17. You can follow along on the screen or follow along in your Bibles there. Uh, Acts 5, 17. Now, Daniel's been walking us through the past few weeks. You know, the church against thriving. Uh, early verses in Acts chapter 5, God is demonstrating his power through the early church and through the disciples and great demonstrations of power and signs and wonders and all this stuff's happening in Jerusalem. There's a movement going on. Well, as you can imagine, some people are not too excited about the growth and the church as it prospers. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up along with all his associates that is the sect of the Sadducees, that's a particular religious group there, and they were filled with jealousy. That's an understatement. This is the same group that put Jesus on mock trial. This is the same group that the apostles have stood before in earlier chapters, and they see this church, that they're, they're trying everything they can to stamp out the fire of this name Jesus, and to stamp out the fire of this message of Christ, and it just keeps growing. And it just keeps growing. It just keeps thriving. And they've just had it. Verse 18, they laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in public jail. Now this is no longer just Peter and John. As best we know, this could be all of the early apostles or at least many of them. And you say, well, jail, that's no big deal. They found themselves there before. But this is different. From where they were in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. This jail, the, the word that's used is, is of a much more severe place. This is a bad place that they put them in. This thing called the public jail. So they throw them in there. Night falls. They're going to wait till the next morning. Again, they're going to have a mock trial with these guys. And everything in them, they're, they're wanting to put an end to this thing called the early church and this movement. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. I love this. And taking them out, he said, go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Now, there's a lot there in verse 19 and 20. I can't even cover it all. So they're locked in this prison. Night falls. God dispatches an angel. An angel goes into this prison, has a pop-a-lock or something, and can open any gate anywhere, opens the gate, walks them out. And watch this. And in the middle of the night, looks at them and says, you're going to go right back to the temple where you were proclaiming Jesus, and you're going to stand, and you're going to continue to speak the name of Jesus and this life there. Hold on. Let's be very honest with one another. Everything in them, and I read that, everything in me comes up with a thousand excuses to do anything but what Jesus calls them to do here, right? I mean, we need a little break. Things are tough. They're just going to throw us back in jail. This doesn't seem to be working. Why in the world would you call us right back to the place we were arrested from just a few minutes before? Everything in me as a disciple of Christ, I could think of a million excuses, and so could you, 
to do anything except what Jesus calls them to do here. Here's the convicting, challenging thing. Verse 21. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. So we see here unwavering, courageous, unflinching, all in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I gotta be honest, left to myself, there's no way I'm doing that. So I'm gonna give you a few life principles as we walk through this. Here's, here's the first one I want you to see from this passage life truth number one the church advances as God's people obey. It's impossible to get around as you walk through the book of Acts that over and over and over and over you see men like Peter and Stephen and Barnabas and Philip and Paul and men and women and disciples who simply obey what Jesus calls them to do. And for us, again, we read this, and my prayer for us as a church, and for me as an individual, this is one of those verses, man, I just pause and say, God, there's many times that's, that's just not me. And, and there's many times I know what God's Word's calling me to do, and I know the steps of action, or I know a relationship I need to mend, or I know a gospel I need to share, or I know something I need to give, or somewhere I need to go, or are you fill in the blank, whatever it is. And my excuse is I've got a thousand reasons why I'm willing to do anything other than what Jesus is simply calling me to do. So I read verse 21. The sun had barely come up the next morning. And these apostles said, okay, here we go. We're going right back to the temple. We're going right back to the place that they arrested us from. We're not sure what's going to happen to us. It didn't go very well yesterday. But you know what? All that doesn't matter because here's what we're going to do. We're going to obey. Now watch this. So when I read something like this, and you read something like this, as a follower of Jesus Christ, how do you respond? In other words, when I, can I take inventory in my life, and I, can I think about all the areas that I'm, I'm debating with you, or all the areas that I'm full of excuses, or, or whatever it is, you, you, you fill in the blank. Here's what we can do. Here's some ways we can respond when we see this kind of obedience from God's people in Scripture. Number one, we can, ex we can excuse ourselves. We can read it and we can say something like this. Well, you know what? That level of radical obedience, that was for the early church. That was for the disciples. That's like, that's like varsity. I'm just junior varsity. I'm just a lowly believer. Watch. That's radical obedience. Listen to me. I hope this challenges you like it challenges me. Obedience to Jesus Christ, radical obedience, whatever the cost, doesn't matter what the cost is, obedience to Jesus Christ is basic Christianity. So if I deceive myself and I read the book of Acts like, oh, that's for them, and it's not for me, I easily excuse myself out and I ignore things like John 6, 46 when Jesus said this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So I can respond with excuses and I can excuse myself out. Or I can read something like this. And here's a likely way that many of us respond. I do sometimes. We can read this and we can respond with moralism. So what does that mean? 
Here's what we do. We say, okay, I see Peter and John and those disciples, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to pull my belt strap up. I'm going to work harder. It's got, look what I'm going to do. I'm going to recommit, and I'm going to do like I've never done. And you know what? No, you're not. Because you, all you're doing is you're trying to appeal to the flesh and you're trying to be moral and you're trying to follow Jesus Christ in your own efforts. And watch this. The gospel is never about following Jesus in your best efforts. Ever. Peter. Remember Peter? Peter two months early. We looked at this just a few weeks. But this is such a vivid illustration. Peter was that. Peter was the moralist. Jesus said, P Peter, you're going to deny me in just a few days. Peter said, no way, Lord, not me. Uh-uh, I'm too strong. I got it all together. I'm so theologically sound. I'm so mature. I would never deny you. And you know how that turned out. What's the point? He was trusting in his own ability. He was the moralist. The Bible does not call you to moralism. The Bible does not call you to be nice. The Bible is calling you to die to self. And the response to something like this as a follower of Jesus Christ is this. Watch. That's not me. And God, I confess to you, my heart many times is not that type of obedience. But Lord, here's what I know to be true. What's this? The same Spirit of God that was in these early disciples is in me as a follower of Christ. And the same power to obey you like that is in me. And God, would you help me? Watch this. Moment by moment, day by day, decision by decision, to die to self and to walk in that joy-filled power of the Holy Spirit just like the disciples did. Listen, that's the gospel. It's not me and my best efforts. It's not me trying harder. It's me to come in passages of Scripture like this and saying, Jesus, that's not me. Make that true of me by your Spirit. Change my heart that it wants to obey. And I quickly obey so that you are glorified and you are honored and your church advances. So we see that this morning. And these disciples were obedient. Lord, make us like that. Story goes on, verse 21, and it gets almost comical here. So the next morning, the high priest, and they, they, they pull the Sanhedrin back together, and they pull this council together. Verse 21 says, now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together. Next morning, even the senate of the sons of Israel, and they sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought out. Well, that's going to be trouble, right? Because they're not there. So they're convening the Sanhedrin, this religious group and they send orders and say bring the apostles here we're going to put these guys on trial and in their minds they're thinking this we're going to put an end to this once and for all verse 22 but when the officers came they did not find them in prison hmm and they returned and reported back saying uh we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now you got to imagine these religious leaders. They think, okay, we've got them in prison. We're going to put them on trial. We send guards. What do you mean you can't find them? It's not a big prison cell. Then you come to verse 24. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, this is the great understatement of the Bible, they were greatly perplexed. The word greatly perplexed, that phrase means at a complete loss. They have no idea where they are or what's happened. 
All they know is they threw them in there. Next morning, they're not there. And about is what was to come of this in verse 24. Now, in the middle of that, they're standing around. They're perplexed. They're having this conversation. Where are these guys? We don't know. Do you know? I don't know. They should be there. In the middle of this conversation, verse 25, some guy walks up. Someone came and reported to them and said, the men whom you put in prison uh, found them. Those guys that you locked up and you're looking for, found them. Uh, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. Oh, by the way, right where you arrested them yesterday. <laughs> Can you imagine the response from the religious leaders? God had it. Everything we try to do to stamp out this church and this movement and this, everything we try backfires. Verse 27, when they brought them, they stood before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this, blood's ma- this man's blood up on us. You will not shut up. We told you to keep your mouth shut about this name, and here you are again. And they're standing before this council, Peter. Filled with courage, filled with the power of the Spirit of God, says, and Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Wow. That's not me. (laughs) Let's just be honest. When we're put in situations where it gets a little dicey or it may cost us something or it's uncomfortable to name the name of Jesus or we may get pushed back left to ourselves, we will always retreat left to ourselves. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. And Peter, instead of backing out, Peter, instead of cowering, Peter preaches a message. Peter says, okay, since I got you here, let me just reiterate the message that I'm preaching. He goes into that. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. And and those, those leaders quit talking about that resurrection. God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He doesn't let him get by with anything. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. He preaches a message to them. He won't stop speaking what he has seen and heard. Here's life truth number two that we've got to grow in as a church. The church advances as God's people boldly share the gospel. To be honest, it again is in one of those passages that I read and I was so convicted of for, for, for us as a church, areas that we've grown and we've advanced and we continue to advance. But for us as a local church, I'm just going to tell you, we don't continue to grow and we don't continue to thrive if we, all of us included, are not sharing the gospel where we live, work, and play. you got to understand, we're set up that way as a church. The early church was set up that way. They had no building. They had no programs. They had no draw. They had nothing to to draw people in. They had the people of God filled with the Spirit, scattered out with the message of the gospel. And wherever they went, live, work, and play, they couldn't stop talking about Jesus. God, help us grow in that area. And I'm just saying this as one of your elders, and I'm saying this as one of you. 
Because we read something like this, and here it is again. Here's that cycle again. We read something like this, the boldness of Peter, and we have various ways we can respond. One is we can make excuses and excuse ourselves out. Well, that's Peter. Well, that's the apostles. Or, or, or me, you know, I hear this a lot. Well, you know, I'm just kind of the silent type. It's, it's really not for me. But Peter says, listen, we are all witnesses of these things. Or we can respond with moralism and say, okay, I, I hear Pastor Mike talking about it all the time. I'm part of that church, and I know they're talking about personal evangelism and, and sharing the gospel. And I hear that. You say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to tighten up my belt, pull up my bootstraps. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to work more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Guess what? No, you're not. Neither am I. All you're doing is appealing to the flesh, and you're saying, look what I'm going to do. Look how strong I am, and your result will be just like Peter two months earlier when a little girl said, are you a follower of Jesus? No way! The flesh profits nothing. So we read this, and our response is, God, when I read the boldness of Peter and the apostles... When I read how they shared Christ, they couldn't stop. And they had such a joy in it. And it was who they were. And that was the culture of the early church. I read that and I go, God, many times left to myself, that's just not me. And God, I want to repent of that attitude. I don't want to make excuses. God, I don't want that to be me. Lord Jesus. And then we cling to the reality, just like before. Cling to the reality. But I'm not left to myself. I'm not left to my own resources. The same Spirit of God that was alive in the early church is alive in you and us as the people of God. Holy Spirit of God, I depend and trust moment by moment by moment by moment in your strength and not my own. God, make us that kind of people. God, give us that heart of obedience that you are glorified by the obedience of your people. God, make us this kind of people that we are talking in our life groups about who we're sharing the gospel with. And we have meals with one another. We're saying, man, who you're able to share the gospel with? Who have you led to Christ? Who are you baptizing? How's God using you to grow his church? Lord, let that be the kind of culture here that we're growing and developing. So in the early church, we see that they, the church was advancing as they were obedient. The church was advancing as they were boldly proclaiming the gospel. And then you come to verse 33, and I want to pick up there. So they're obedient, boldly proclaiming. Peter, <laughs> I love Peter. Peter, okay, Peter, you, you better stop sharing the gospel. You better stop speaking about Jesus. He says, okay, but let me, let me tell you about Jesus while I'm waiting. He just preaches right back to him. And they've had it, verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they intended to kill them. Now listen, don't read over that. That is as, as intense language as you can read in Scripture. Here's a group that had the authority, had the means, they have the will, they have the desire. They are ready to put every one of these apostles to death. They have And what God does here is an incredible truth and a reality for you and I to latch on to. So the next verse says, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel. 
So everything in these early leaders, they're going to they're gonna put these apostles to death. They've had it in a, in a Pharisee, a religious leaders. There's Pharisees and there's Sadducees and there's all these different groups. Well, this is one of these other groups that make up this Sanhedrin. A Pharisee who's not a believer, doesn't believe in the resurrection, wants to stamp out the church just like the rest of them. A Pharisee named Gamaliel stands up, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. He stood up in the council and gave orders for the men to be put outside for a short, a short time. Into verse 34. So in the midst of this, when, to be fair, the early church could be stamped out here, if you will, by the apostles being all murdered and killed a man named Gamaliel steps up and I'm not going to take time to read all this but basically here's what he says he was extremely respected he carried a lot of clout people listened when he spoke and he stood up and he said to that group of religious leaders be very careful what you do And then he gave a couple of illustrations of things that had happened in the past of other leaders that had come to the forefront and had a group of followers and that none of them amounted to anything. He, he mentions a guy named Thudius and he said, you remember Thudius, he rose up, and had followers and then he died and it just kind of all went away. Then he said, you remember there was this other guy named Judas of Galilee. He rose up and had some followers after him. And then after he perished, it all just kind of scattered and amounted to nothing. And then he says, verse 37, so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you might find yourself fighting against God. Now, the irony in that is that the man God uses doesn't believe in Christ, doesn't believe in the gospel, wants to step out the church just like the rest of them, but God intervenes and uses this man. And watch this. They listen to him. Next verse says they took the counsel, verse, verse 40. Say, Pastor Mike, okay, I get all that. What in the world are you driving at? What is that supposed to do? God grows his church when his people obey. God is growing his church through the bold proclamation of the gospel. But here you see, watch this third principle. The church advances because of the providence of God. It's the people of God who have a high view of who God is and the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. I pray there are times in our lives just like this account you just read. You've got to back up and you say, I have no explanation for that. It's not because of our plan. It's not because of our program. It's not even because of us. We can attribute that simply to the good providence of our God. And that's what happened here. God would raise up a man, Gamaliel, a Pharisee, and use him at this point to save the future of the church, so to speak, is nothing more than the providence of God. And oh, by the way, Gamaliel is known very well near the end of the book of Acts because Gamaliel's most famous student was a man named Saul, who eventually became Paul. And you can see the good providence of God working all of these things together. I say all that for us as a church, ultimately undergirding everything we do and everything God lets us experience and all the good gifts that we experience as a people, as a church, we have to say is the providence of our good God. 
And I pray as we advance and we continue and we move forward, there is time after time after time that we simply are left saying, we don't know how all this worked out. All we can do is say, it's the goodness of God. And listen, you can say that about so many things now in the life of our church. You saw earlier, you see these cohort students standing on stage. We're a little church in East Tennessee that gets to train men and women at a seminary level. Do you know how many churches in America get to do that? Ten. Twenty. Few. Very few. We get to do something like that. Why? Providence of God. Humanly hard work by a man named Daniel Broyles that I'm going to give public acclaim to and say, Daniel, thank you for your work in making that possible. A man like Wes Tucker who works very hard, but they would tell you first and foremost, it's the goodness and the providence of God. We, we as a church paid off our debt a couple months ago that stood at $2.4 million six years ago. And you can say we worked hard and we sacrificed and we did, and I thank God for that. But listen, ultimately, a church to pay off a $2.4 million debt like ours in six years, that's the providence of God providence of God you can't get far in the book of Acts that you don't come to some instances where you've got to say Jesus promised he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and you see the providence of God carrying out the promise of Jesus he's going to build his church and we get to be a part of that So you see the good providence of God, and in this case, the good providence of God works out that the disciples live. Doesn't always turn out that way, by the way. We'll see that in a few weeks. So they listen to Gamaliel's counsel, and I want you to look at just a couple more verses, and then we'll wrap up and be finished this morning. So Acts 540. So they listen to Gamaliel's counsel. And after calling the apostles in, remember they had sent them out, so they pull them back into the council. And the Bible says, in what might be one of the great understatements of the Bible, they flogged them. What's striking to me is that the author here, Luke, just he doesn't say much about it. He just says, they brought them back in and they flogged them. Now, I don't know if you're up on your history or if you know what a flogging is. But a flogging basically is a public, shameful, extremely painful source of punishment that was carried out on all of these disciples. Flogging involved most likely 39 lashes with a whip with a piece of bone in the end that would penetrate into the flesh and then they would pull it back out causing extreme pain. Most likely each apostle received 39 lashes publicly. They were probably tied to a pole. They were probably stripped naked. It was public. It was shameful. It was embarrassing. Listen, it was painful. And the Bible says, and they flogged them. What's the point here? Keep going. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. So they've been put in jail once. An angel comes and lets them out. They come and get them again. They tell them they're going to kill them. And they somehow, by the providence of God, escape. They flog them. So here, picture this. The disciples are walking out from the temple or wherever they were in ratty, raggy clothes. Blood is probably pouring from their back. 
their faces beat to pieces, and you and I, watch this, I know what I would be doing in that situation. I'm released. I'm going home. This isn't fair. I didn't deserve this. Where's my lawyer? This is not right. So here's my challenge from the earlier in the message. We'll say again, how do you and I respond when following Jesus costs us something? How do you and I respond when there is something is demanded of us, if you will, as followers of Jesus Christ? These guys have every reason in the world to complain, to whine. It's not fair. And it's one of these verses, verse 41, that I read it and I stop and I've got to conclude that's not me. Here's what happened. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. What's the next word? Rejoicing. I don't think you heard that. Let's try that again. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. What's the next word? Rejoicing. I mean, I got to read that and I go, Lord, are you kidding me? God, I get upset. I get upset at the least little things that are asked of me, that are expected of me. I get upset if anything costs me something or at a small loss of something. I, I mean, we struggle sometimes to get to church on time. And here are these guys, come on. And they're rejoicing? I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, God, that's not me. But I want that to be me. And they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Here's your final truth, and we're going to stop here. Final truth is this. The church advances through the suffering and the sacrifice of God's people. You cannot escape through the book of Acts that the church advances. And by the way, you and I are here 2,000 years later through the sacrifice and the suffering of God's people. The book of Acts shows us very clearly, you and I, as we follow Jesus in a fallen world, there will be times it costs us. There will be times things are demanded of us if we are going to pursue Christ's likeness. Watch this. Listen, everything in me left to my flesh resists growth toward Christ's likeness. Everything. Everything in me resists what Jesus is doing in me, what's good for me, and what advances the kingdom. I have every excuse. I have every reason. I'm lazy. I'm all of those things left to myself. I want this. John Calvin said of these early disciples, he said, We must not think that the apostles did not feel ashamed. They were ashamed. This was publicly embarrassing. And even suffer from a sense that they had been wronged. I mean, there had to be moments they're wrapped around that pole and the whip is coming down and Peter's got to be thinking, no, I didn't, this is not fair. For they had not discarded human nature completely. I mean, these are humans just like you and me. But what's what he said? But when they had thought over the cause, joy got the upper hand. And they were able to walk out of that place probably back to the temple to keep preaching for all I know, a bloody mess, rejoicing and saying, why would we be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake? Now listen, I can read something like this and I can excuse myself out and say, well, it's just them. 
I can read something like this and I can be a moralist and go, well, I'm going to try harder and do more. No, you're not. Left to yourself, I will never respond this way left to myself, ever. Or I can do what the disciples did. How is it that they responded with this kind of joy? Let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, the promise of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, i got to think that as they were strapped maybe on that pole, as the whip was coming in, i got to think maybe, maybe Matthew looked over at James and said, Hey, James, remember what Jesus said. Remember a few months ago when he was with us, he said this, Matthew 5, Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Remember what Jesus said, rejoice and be glad. Listen, left to ourselves, we will never rejoice and be glad when following Jesus costs us something, ever. Say, remember what Jesus said, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Remember what Jesus said. So i got to think in that moment, just like you and me, they are clinging, they are claiming the promises of God. And the promises of God to them in that moment were much greater than any loss that they had to suffer. And they rejoiced that it cost them something. Second thing I think is true here is that they, they, they held on to their union with Jesus Christ. In other words, they realized the same Jesus that had been persecuted before them, the same Jesus that had hung on a cross before them, was the same Jesus who was in them. They were rejoicing in their union with Christ. Now listen, here's what Jesus said about this. John 15 says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you... If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecute you, they will. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. So here's what Peter and John and the guys knew. The same Jesus. We rejoice that, yes, Christ is in us. We celebrate the abiding life. We know that it is through Christ we overcome. But we also know, watch this. The life of Jesus demonstrated a reality that in following Jesus, suffering often comes before glory. In the life of Jesus, there was suffering that had to happen in a fallen world before the glory of the cross and the resurrection. So for us as followers, for the church to advance and for us as followers to grow as believers, often it involves self-denial and it involves suffering. And you say, well, that's such bad news. No, no. And in that is joy that is inexpressible. How in the world? You say, Pastor Mike, i got to be honest, joy doesn't characterize my life when things are going well. How in the world could joy characterize a life when you're bloody and bruised and shamed and embarrassed and it seems everything's coming apart? One reason, Christ in you. Christ in you. And the same Jesus that is in these early disciples is the same Jesus that is in you. The Spirit of the living God is in you. Paul said it this way, And since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Watch this. But if we are to share His glory, we must also share His suffering. They rejoiced. 
Not in the pain, not in the shame per se, but in the fact that anything they had to give up, anything they had to sacrifice, paled in comparison to the joy of knowing Christ and experiencing the intimacy, as Paul calls it, even the fellowship of suffering. We're going to continue to look at this through the book of Acts. We can't exhaust this this morning. But just know this. Suffering often precedes glory. Early church understood that. God, give us that kind of heart. God, give us that kind of understanding. Closing illustration, I'm done. There was a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of Jim Elliot, who, if you know the story, was murdered by the Alca Indians of Ecuador. Everything in Elizabeth and the others said, leave, go away, don't go back. Why would you go back to the very place your husband was murdered? If you know the story, some years back, she, some years later, she went back with her family, had an incredible ministry there. Thousands of those Indians came to know Christ. There was a gospel movement there. That doesn't come natural. Joy in the midst of suffering doesn't come natural. And they said, Elizabeth Elliot, how do you explain that kind of attitude? And she said this, the secret is not in a different set of circumstances or even being in a different place. The secret is Christ in me. Christ in me. So when you read the book of Acts and you're challenged by the truth that's here, child of God, if you're a follower of Christ and you know Christ, the same Spirit of God is in you that was in the early church. Walk by faith and dependence in Him. Would you bow your head with me a little bit this morning? I just want to give you a moment just to respond to what God may be doing in your heart. We're going to stand and sing together in just a moment. Anthony's going to lead us, but just for a moment, right there where you're seated, Maybe there's a response you need to offer to the Lord. Maybe you need to be honest by all your excuses you've been offering to Him. Maybe you need to be real honest that yours is nowhere near that attitude of obedience that we see here. This idea of speaking the gospel, that's just not me. Or maybe if you're real honest, the idea that costing, following Jesus costs me something is so foreign to me. God, change our hearts. Lord, help us right now to be honest with you. Lord, to cry out from a place of dependence and recognize by faith the same spirit that was in them is in us. Jesus, change us by your power and not our own for your glory and the advancement of your church. I pray this for my brothers and sisters in Christ here today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing. Maybe you need to sit and pray. Maybe you need to stand and pray. Maybe you need to come to the front and kneel and pray. Whatever it is, I want you to respond as God prompts and leads you this morning. So let's stand and let's respond as Anthony leads us. Hallelujah, holy, holy, God almighty, great I am, who is worthy. None beside thee, God Almighty, the great I am, hallelujah, holy, holy, God Almighty, the great I am, who is worthy.
God Almighty, the great I am. Sing you are all to us. Oh, and you're all to us. You're all to us. You're all to us. We believe you're all to us. We you're all to us. Amen. Hope that's a prayer for us, a desperate prayer. Lord, be all to us. I'm going to ask our ushers to begin to make their way toward the front. We're going to enter into our time of uh, tithes and offerings. And uh, as we faithfully give to the Lord Jesus this morning. So let me pray for you as our ushers make their way down. Father, again, we thank you for this time. Lord, let this song be... Lord, even as we leave this morning, God, if you're not all to us, God, change our hearts. Lord, anything we're called to give, sacrifice, God, it's a joy because you're better. You are all to us. Lord, multiply and bless these offerings for your sake, the advancement of this church and your kingdom to the very ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys go ahead and be seated.